we are uh, in Lent. And again, for those of you who haven't had experience with Lent before, I told you last week that we did an introductory sermon to Lent. Not last, not the not the first sermon in our Lenten series here, but on a Wednesday evening, a midweek service, I, I did an introduction to Lent, which is just to help explain kind of like what this thing's all about. Because some of you come from backgrounds that haven't experienced that. That's online now. Matt put that online, um, and so that's just called Lent: An Invitation to Grace. Um, and you'll find it on the website if you want to learn more about that. But our series here this morning, you know, we're going through the seven last phrases of Christ spoken from the cross. Um, and we're calling it the Beautiful Red Letters is the name of the series. And uh, today, our our phrase, as you see here, is today you will be with me in paradise. And you see uh, our prop is up this week and we're ready to go. Um, so now you know what we're doing with these things. And our text is in Luke chapter 23. And, well, oh, and uh, we're in Luke chapter 23 and uh, and we're picking up right where we left off. Okay. Um, it was, we ended at verse 37. And for many of the phrases of the cross, we're pulling from different, uh, different gospels, uh, different books of the Bible, that is. There's only one gospel, but you know what I mean? There's the, there's the four gospel writings. Um, and, but this one, it's actually backs right up to the one we just did. We ended in verse 37 of Luke chapter 23, and we're picking up in verse 38. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, if you look at verse 38, you can stand with me in honor of God's word as we read. We, uh, we just believe that his, his word is foundational for us. And uh, this is a holy, holy document and a holy story. So we read it in honor by standing. All right, verse 38 to 23. There was, written, there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. And may you be really blessed at the reading of that word and also at the living of that word. Please join me in prayer. Thank you, God, for this word. We thank you for your words from the cross. They are profound and they are deep and they are rich. And uh, we hope to learn some more about them. We don't uh, at all expect that we will understand the whole depth of them. That These are probably words that we'll be learning about for all of eternity. But uh, we hope to learn more about them today in a way that speaks profoundly into our situation. And we ask that you would do that by the work of your spirit. We do ask that you also be with the, uh, the junior church and child care workers as we um, are uh, spending our time here, that you would bless them as well. And that spiritually, God, you would protect our hearts and our minds as we engage in your word. In the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. Thanks. So here it is. Today you will be with me. In paradise, okay, this is, our, this is our phrase of the day, and this goes up here, I believe. There we go. Trying to get it Just straight enough. <laughs> All right. Today you'll be with me in paradise. What's paradise? This is a trick question. 
A little bit. Not really, Trick. I just there's no necessarily it's real hard to get a real solid answer, but what are some of the answers? What is paradise? Heaven, okay. Any other thoughts? Those of us who believe in Scripture, you know, there's, there's a few different thoughts around what paradise is. Some say that Eden, the Garden of Eden, was paradise. Um, some say that uh, paradise is that holding place when you die before there's the final judgment, before heaven and hell, there's this other place called paradise, you know. Uh, there's a number of different views on what paradise is if you believe in the Scriptures um, and if you believe in the afterlife. If you don't believe in the Scriptures and you don't believe in afterlife, then what is paradise? Cheeseburgers in paradise. <laughs> it, it's, you know, it, it's this place where there are palm trees and there's white sand and there's blue skies and clear water and it's like 85 and it's awesome, you know, but it's the best that earth has to offer. You don't need to use your imagination very much to see this kind of paradise at all. As a matter of fact, this paradise, like you can find video footage of it, or there, I'm sure there are plenty of people who would love to show you advertisements about it. And uh, the, those who are wealthy enough and those who are fortunate enough can find paradise here on earth, you know, uh, because the best of what earth has to offer, if there's no afterlife and if you don't believe in the scriptures, paradise is just basically the best of the pleasures of this earth. That maybe that place of serenity, that place of peace, whatever it is on earth. There's another thing. If you don't believe in scriptures and don't believe in afterlife, there's, there's actually, I was corrected in first service. I said, there's one other thing that, uh, that paradise could be, uh, for a, a person who doesn't believe in the scriptures, but I was corrected. There's two other things because apparently uh, I forgot, of course, that it's also the place where my wife was born, uh, Paradise, Pennsylvania. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I said to everyone in the first service, I said, yeah, so what's the other thing that paradise could be? And someone said, where your wife was born. I'm like, oh, yeah, right, good point. And um, I do always like to say that I married a girl from Paradise, and, um, and I have no idea how that happened. But uh, there is another thing. If paradise is, is not just, if paradise is not afterlife and if it's not heaven or Eden or something like that, there's these possibilities that it's either on earth, it's like the best of what earth has to offer, or it's pure fantasy. It's just a figment of our imagination. It's a lie. It's fantasy. Paradise is unachievable. It's just something that people make up in their minds. And people, plenty of people believe this, that there is no such thing as really paradise, that that's something that we entice our minds with to keep us going, you know, uh, to give us hope. <clears throat> so what is fantasy? That's what it is. You know, if, if paradise is just a fantasy, what is fantasy? There's, I want to give you some definitions of fantasy according to the um, dictionary. Extravagant and unrestrained imagination. Extravagant, unrestrained imagination is fantasy. Second, the forming of wondrous and strange mental images, imaginative conceptualization. When we conceive something in our imagination, it's strange, maybe wonderful, maybe wondrous, certainly extravagant and unrestrained, that this is fantasy. Fantasy is a function of the imagination, and yet it deals largely in false realities, in things that are unreal, okay? That can be good or bad, right? There's a kind of cool kind of fantasy, which is like if you read, you know, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or many authors who have painted amazing, uh, fantastical pictures that actually are created to inspire us. We're not supposed to think that they're real, but they're supposed to make points for us. In a false reality, we look at this false reality and it shows us things about our reality, right? And that's the whole point of those. But then there's also... 
uh, of course, negative fantasy life where there's uh, fantasy about things that are inappropriate. Either way, uh, fantasy is dealing with unreal imagination, imagining things that are unreal. Is all imagination fantasy? Is there imagination that deals with things that are actually real? Well, as a matter of fact, imagination is the seed of reality. From the way I read it in the scriptures and from the way I see it is that when we conceive of something in our minds, when we think of an idea, that's where it starts before it becomes reality. Some of you have heard of William Arthur Ward. He was a Christian author in the previous century. He died in uh, just in, uh, I think it was 1994. Uh, If you read Reader's Digest, you may have encountered him. If you read Our Daily Bread, you would have encountered him. He was a writer in those places. And uh, he had this phrase that uh, you may have heard of. He says, if you can imagine it, you can achieve it. If you can dream it, you can become it. I don't know if I fully agree with that because, you know, there are certain things that are just unreal, that are not possibilities that you can actually imagine, but they're not real. Now, those things are actually called fantasies. What he's saying is, is given reality, if you can imagine something first, if you can think it through and imagine it, then you can probably achieve it, you know? And and if you can truly dream about something, then you might be able to become it. But it starts, it's hard to imagine, it's hard to see something happening without us first imagining it. The scriptures say that imagination is a really, really, really important thing, both in God and in us. There's this picture of of uh, of Jesus. Well, there's Jesus talks about it, right? Where uh, in uh, or in uh, Matthew five in the Sermon on the Mount, where he's saying, "You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that if you look at a woman inappropriately, you've already committed adultery in your heart." What is he talking about? He's talking about imagination. He's talking about fantasy. What he's saying is, is he says that in the mental image of our mind, where we create thoughts and ideas and pictures, that there's actually morality there. In some places, that's where morality is conceived. Where what we will do is conceived in the pictures in our mind. We choose what to dwell on, what to think of, what to dream about, what to hope for, what to desire. And in that imaginative world, there is morality. And that morality there determines much of what we will ultimately think about the world and what we will do with our lives. And the scriptures reveal that sometimes uh, God gets really frustrated because men are given over to their own imaginations to do whatever their imaginations can create. Romans 1 uh, talks about this, where it says that uh, the depravity of... God gave men over to the depravity of their mind because they had pursued their own imaginations, so all their imaginations had turned evil. All the things they were desiring, hoping for, all the things they were picturing were becoming evil. And so eventually, God allowed their minds to be distorted to a false reality because they were living in a fantasy world. And he said, you want to live in a fantasy world? Go ahead, and their minds begin to shift and live in this fantasy a false reality, if you will, and yet one that got adopted as the basic reality of our world based on fantasy. God, however, is also all about imagination. Picture this. It's all darkness. All there is on the face of the earth is darkness. 
And hovering over the waters is a Holy Spirit. Hovering over the waters, brooding over the waters. And what is it that he's doing? He's making plans. Intention. Design. Hovering. Imagining. Huh. What are we going to do? I got an idea. Let's make man in our image. That's a good idea. In our image. Catch that word, right? Image. Very closely tied to imagination. The image. And so God imagines humanity and then he creates humanity. He creates a world. And it started first with his imagination. And then there's this thing that we are his imagination in the same way that uh, Tolkien or Lewis would, would imagine a, a, a fantasy world and then would write it into paper. God imagined a real world and then created it and it was us. You know, And we are coming up out of his imagination where God creates us. And then in that world, we, there are certain realities now that God has created. And then he speaks to us, oftentimes even in our imagination. He speaks through our thoughts. He speaks through pictures. He speaks through our perspective when we see things. One of the things that he talks about in Jeremiah is about how uh, the prophets had totally blown it. He kind of refers to this in Ezekiel too, where the prophets had completely blown it. And, and this is how, why he says, don't listen to those prophets. They prophesy out of their own imagination. That's what he said. Because see, the, the, the realm in which God communicates to us, he communicates to us in our thoughts. He communicates to us in our emotions. He communicates to us certainly through text. And he communicates to us through our imagination. But see, I can have my own thoughts and think God thinks this way, duh. But unless he's redeeming my mind, I'm not thinking his thoughts. Unless my mind is being washed with the water of the word, then I'm not thinking his thoughts. And in the same way, I can imagine something. I can dream something. I can think about how good it should be. But just because I'm imagining it doesn't mean it's the voice of God. But these prophets were imagining this stuff and then they were speaking it out as if it was the very words of God. But they themselves weren't seeking for God. And so they're imagining imaginations weren't redeemed. They weren't cleansed. And whatever it was they were imagining, it wasn't actually from God. But in a redeemed imagination, God can speak to us. He can communicate to us in our imagination. He can communicate to us in our thoughts. He can communicate to us in, in phenomenal ways as we're redeemed. There's a few words that are used by the scripture to translate this word imagination. You know, in, in the King James, if you read King James cover to cover, there's a bunch of instances where you'll find the word imagination in there. And it's and when you look at that word and then you see it translated in more modern translations like the NIV or the NAS or the ESV or whatever, um, it's interesting because there's no one word that's used to substitute for that word imagination now. Like in each situation, they translate it something very different. Like for instance, if God wants to do something, but the imagination of men is evil, and so therefore, uh, it, it doesn't work. They won't receive it. Now, instead of translating that word imagination, what they translate it as is stubbornness. Okay? So man's stubborn, which means they'll only see things their way. They have no imagination to see what God's talking about. Zero ability to imagine it God's way because they're just stubborn in their thinking. I'm going to see it this way. This is the way I see it. God can't invade that. That's stubbornness. There's another word he uses, that, or another word that's translated in this word imagination, and it's called intent. Intent. 
Whatever it is that I wanted to do, whatever I'm conceptualizing, this is what I'm designing in my head. This is what I'm intending to do. And that can be a good or a bad thing. If the intentions of men's heart are evil, then their imagination is going to lead them a certain way. However, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That word desire, intention, right there. Desire, intention. If what you're imagining, if what you're pursuing, if what you're intending, if what you're hoping for, if what you're looking for is God, then guess what? If you seek him, you will find him if you seek him with all your hearts. Whatever the intentions of our heart are, whatever the desire of our heart is, whatever the conceptualization of our mind is, that leads us down a certain path. What in the world does any of that have to do with today? You will be with me in paradise. Well, hang on, I'm getting there. Hang on. All right. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Here's the thing. It starts off the, the, um, this part of the text in verse 38. It starts off with what? What's verse 38 about? Look in your scripture there and tell me what, what 38 is. What is it? What's it revealing? What's verse 38? Somebody tell me. What is it? What's it telling us about? Who Jesus is? Yeah, just like real, real basic. What's it say? There's this sign above him, right? There's written a notice above him which read, this is king of the Jews. So the whole thing starts off with up above this, there's this sign, and it says king of the Jews. So our whole text this morning starts with a sign above Jesus that says he's king of the Jews. Okay, that's how this whole thing starts. And we just got to, that's really important to see how this thing's starting. Okay, that he's king of the Jews. <coughs> now, why that sign is up there is really interesting. Who put the sign there? Pilate put the sign there. Who told Pilate to put the sign there? No one that we know of. Someone probably, you know. But he just puts the sign up there. Why does Pilate think that it's a good idea to put a sign above the cross of Christ that says this is king of the Jews? And then what's more is, we know from other texts, not from this one, that, you know, uh, the, the religious leaders get really, really frustrated about this, right? They're all bent out of shape over it, and they go back and they say, don't say that this is king of the Jews, but say that he says that he's king of the Jews. He thinks he's king of the Jews. He imagines he's king of the Jews. He fantasizes that he's king of the Jews. He wishes he was king of the Jews. But look at him. He's on a cross. That's what the religious leaders are thinking. Live in the real world, Jesus. You're not king of anything. You're hanging on a cross. And interestingly, Pilate says, I don't think so. It's staying just as it is. Why? Why? I don't pretend to know exactly what was going on in Pilate's mind. But there's a few different possibilities. One might be that everything that he has encountered with Jews, that whatever he encountered with Jesus was far greater than anything else he had encountered. You know? And maybe there was a part of him that's like, that actually makes more sense to me, you know? And I'm just going to leave it there. Or maybe it was that he was sick and tired of losing battles with these guys today, and he was going to put his stake in the ground and say, you're not getting me on this one, you know? Or maybe what he's saying is in a sarcastic, cynical tone, he's saying to them, the best thing that comes out of you, this is what you do to it, you know? And literally, he's like, pretty much you guys are like, this is the best thing that, that's been given to you, and this is what you do with it. You know, maybe there's that sarcastic tone. Regardless of what it is, what no one actually seemed to realize in the moment 
was that this is truly not just the king of the Jews, but also, of course, the king of the earth, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And there's two criminals on either side of them, uh, either side of him, who are being crucified with him. And, and what they may or may not know initially is that they're being crucified next to the king, the king of all. And they have to encounter him. Whether they like it or not, they're encountering the king. And so they each interact with Jesus. They each interact with the king. And the funny thing to me is, is that they ask for the exact same thing. Did you, you ever realize that? Both these criminals ask for the same thing. They ask for salvation. One of them asks for it in a sinning, sin, <laughs> yes, Freudian slip, in a, in a cynical and judgmental and mocking tone. And what he basically says is, he's like, come on, are you kidding me? We're sitting here hanging on this cross, and you've been sitting there playing your game and talking like you're all that, but look at you, you're hanging on a cross like us. You, you feel better than us now? If you're that great, then jump off the cross, and by the way, take me with you, you know? And that's his mocking tone. Now, what's interesting is, is he's saying, take me off the cross. Get me, if you actually are the cross, what you should do. Let me tell you how you should do your job if you're the Messiah. That's what he's saying. If you're the Messiah, get me off this thing. And he barks orders at the king. Okay, tough guy, Messiah, get me off the cross. Which is how many people talk to God these days. If you're God, prove it to me. Do something amazing for me. You know? Then I'll believe you. You know, and this is what this guy's saying as he's hanging on the cross. All right, go ahead. Show me. You're God. Get off the cross and take me off with you. What he's looking for is a handout from a Messiah who he doesn't even actually believe in. Because he has no fear of God. In the first service, we had uh, special music by Dina Baver, and she sang Amazing Grace. And as she was singing that song, uh, that one line just stuck out to me. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and then grace my fear relieved. You know, the funny thing is, is if we ask for grace or mercy before we've learned the law, then we don't even know what grace and mercy are. Picture kids not being disciplined because the parents always want to show them grace and mercy. How's that turn out? You know, you've seen it. If I don't, if I don't discipline my kids at all because I want to show them mercy and I just want to show them the grace of God, you guys are all going to have to pay for it. You know, you know, it's like you guys are all going to have to pay for the fact that I didn't discipline my kids because it's grace that teaches my kids to fear. But then it's also grace that teaches the relief of that fear. That relieves that fear. And, and so until we learn the law, until we learn to receive the actual consequences of the law, then we can't receive mercy or grace. And this guy who's standing over here next, who's hanging next to Jesus, who's saying, all right, tough guy, get yourself off the cross and get me off as well. When he's saying that, he's looking for a handout from Jesus. And it would be absurd of Jesus to actually give him that handout because all he would be in, doing is enabling a false mindset that this guy's still in control. He's hanging here in his pride and in his arrogance. And still at this moment has no brokenness in him, no repentance in him. Even as he's hanging on a cross, he's not accepting the consequences of his sin. He's receiving the consequences, but he's not accepting them. You know what I mean? And so he's still kind of this tough guy. He's still in control of his life. And this is that picture of when we live in a tolerant, you know, we live in a tolerant generation at this point. And you know what the tolerant generation where instead of actually forgiving someone for something, we're just called to tolerate.
them. Instead of having mercy for something, we're just called to accept it. In other words, we don't call sin, sin anymore. What we do is we pretend that it's not really sin and we're just supposed to integrate that in with everything else. And sometimes that really, really angers Christians on a political level, okay? And it really angers Christians. But that's oftentimes because we haven't, dealt, we haven't called sin, sin in here. And so we're looking for a scapegoat. We're looking to become righteous. So we name sin out there all the time. Name that, name that, name that, instead of taking ownership for what's really in here. And that's just like the guy hanging on the cross who's sitting there. All right, tough guy, you're, the, you're, you're acting like you're the big guy on the cross, the Messiah or whatever. And he's actually mocking Jesus when he hasn't come to terms with his own sin. And then he goes the other way and he asks for the free handout. And he asks for the free handout. And that's when we're looking for acceptance and we're looking for mercy, but really all we're wanting, we're not wanting mercy and we're not wanting forgiveness. We're just wanting tolerance and acceptance, which means we want people to be okay with what we've done wrong without ever confessing that it's actually wrong. And that's a problem. That's a problem. That, that is what we call impossible. <laughs> we can't actually, we lose forgiveness in a world where we lose the law. Unless the grace has taught our hearts to fear, then we can't receive the relief from that fear. Unless a man accepts the consequences of his sin, then he can't actually receive the mercy of Jesus. And so that sign hanging above Jesus just looks like an absolute joke to the one guy on the cross. Looks like a joke. Are you kidding me? Have you ever had a hard time receiving something? Receiving a gift? <clears throat> if you say no, I'm just going to tell you you're a liar. You know, um, so we, we all have, have difficulty receiving things at times. And there's a few different reasons. Give me some of the reasons why it's tough to receive stuff. Anybody think of a reason? Okay, good point. That is a great point. It's not what you wanted. <laughs> That's a really good point. Let's, uh, that is... Uh, that's wisdom at work right there, Barb. Yeah. Um, so uh, assume that it is something that you want. Assume it's the thing that you need. And, uh, and yet we have a hard time receiving it. Why? Pride. Okay, so number one thing is pride. Why does pride make it hard to receive something? What does it say about me if I receive something? That I need help. I don't need help. Have you seen me? I got this. You know, I got this. I'm an American. I live on my own. We got our family. We take care of this. We can conquer the world. We got our stuff together. I don't know why no one else does, but we got our stuff together. We can't admit that we need help because if we need help, then that means that we're not nearly as strong as we tried to put off that we actually are. And pride has to come crumbling down in order to receive help. It's one reason. There's another reason. Greed. Greed and selfishness. Why do greed and selfishness make it hard for me to receive? Any guesses? This is why. Because in my world right here, if I earned everything and I got this on my own, then guess who has control over all this? Me. And I can do whatever I want with my stuff because I earned it by the sweat of my brow. So I can do whatever I want with my time, whatever I want with my money, whatever I want with my relationships because it's mine. And I want more of it and I'll work to get more of it. But this is mine. 
And I don't want to take a handout from you, because if I take a handout from you, you know what that means, right? It, you may say this is just a gift, but somewhere inside of me, I'm probably going to feel indebted to you, and I'm probably going to feel a responsibility that all this stuff inside of my world, I actually have to consider you now. And I don't want to have to consider you, because I don't want to live in relationship with you, because I can't be God over your life, so I just want to be God over mine. You know what I mean? So I want control. So greed and selfishness yearn for control, and therefore we don't want anyone else speaking into it. So pride keeps us from receiving God's grace. The, the, the greed and the selfishness keep us from receiving God's grace. And then there's this other thing. That's called fear. Fear keeps us from receiving God's grace. You know why? This is why. Because God tells me that he can heal someone. And I hurt for that person. And so I get on my knees and I get on my face and I start praying to God. And I say, I need something bigger than myself. And I allow my imagination to expand and believe that there's something bigger than just what I can do with my hands. That there might be a God who can actually do all of this. And so I pray to him and I plead to him. And then something doesn't work. And all of a sudden, my heart is shattered. Because I trusted someone bigger than myself. And they didn't come through and do things the way I wanted, as Barb said. You know? They didn't do it the way I want. And therefore, I'm hurt. And I want to avoid the hurt. And so instead of having an imagination to receive something bigger, I choose to limit my imagination. To live in my own world where I control my own resources and where I can act like I got it together. But because of that, I can't receive anything outside of myself. And this man who hangs on a cross next to Jesus even while he's dying, has zero imagination to see anything bigger than himself. He can't think about the fact that there might be a way different than this way he's been living. Some think that he was a zealot, that he was a rebellious, a rebellion guy against, you know, a, 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 a freedom fighter for the Jews trying to take out Romans and that he stood there in all of his pride saying, hey, at least I did something and I'm dying for it, you know. But those who live by the sword die by the sword. Those who live by control will die in their pride and in their control. And he had no imagination to see anything else. However, fortunately, he's not the only person who's hanging next to Jesus because we need another picture. And the other picture is there's this other man who's hanging on the other side of Jesus who has a completely different perspective, completely and totally different perspective. And here's how I imagine what happened with this guy. I imagine that he's sitting there hanging on the cross and his heart is just completely torn apart. That he is grief struck. He's just deeply grief struck. And he's looking at his life and he's saying, really? Is this what my life has come to? After all of this, this is what I get at the end. You know, th this is what it amounts to. All that stuff I tried to do, all that I tried to accomplish, this is where it ends. All those hard nights doing this or all those times I stole that or all those times I, whatever it is, it leads to this moment where I'm hanging on a cross and you can just feel the weight of it. And what I think begins to happen in this moment is he starts to realize, man, I thought I was in control. I thought I could figure it out. And guess what? I can't. I thought I could cheat the system and I can't cheat the system. I thought I could get ahead by my own, you know, ingenuity and I can't. I thought if I lived in this world, this, this world that I could imagine how it would be and I could make that fantasy a reality, it doesn't work out. In the end, it's me hanging on a cross. And in this moment, I think he's broken. And he hears this guy speaking from the other side. And I just hear it like 
being abrasive to his soul, you know, where he's like, I can't stand another minute because all this rhetoric that that guy is spitting is the stuff that I've believed my whole life. And it's the stuff that put me on this cross. And my pride has gotten me nowhere. And my greed has gotten me nowhere. And my fear has gotten me nowhere. And I believe that in that moment, there's a brokenness about him, a humility about him, where he is owning his own reality. He's owning where he is right now. And, and so he's lived in the false reality where you, that, that idea of tolerance and acceptance in his mind, where we, he justifies his behavior, where we justify our behavior. And instead, he's owning it and he's confessing his sin. And because of it, a whole new world opens. Have you ever been in a place where you've been trying to take more control than you should with your life? Where you've had the grips there and you're trying to make this happen or you're trying to make that happen. Where you're trying to make sure this doesn't happen and protect from this happening. And you get the tension and your shoulders start to get tight, you know, because all the tension in you. And you can't relax and you're losing the joy and the peace of your life. And you're just running around like crazy and it's all nuts. And then... You come to terms at some point, hopefully, you wake up to the fact that, what am I doing? I'm trying to play God. I'm not God. I can't do this, you know? And when we come to terms with that, we realize whatever it is that I'm looking for, whatever it is I'm chasing, that I'm living in a false reality right now. And when we come to terms with that, what happens? This is what happens. We go from having a very, very small world where we're, we have all sorts of stuff that we got to take care of and we have limited resources to do it, all of a sudden we wake up and we realize, I'm not in control of my world at all. And there's a whole lot more factors that invade my life than just the ones that I can control. Yeah, I can go to work or not go to work. And yeah, I can yell at my kids or not yell at my kids. And yeah, I can do this and do that. But when I start to realize, I mess up even the stuff that I can do and I mess up that reality. And even if I could do all of that right, it wouldn't be enough to change my greater reality. That there's a much bigger reality that I am facing right now and there's factors a whole lot bigger than me. And I need to accept my responsibility for what it is that I've been doing inappropriately. And when I do that and I'm humbled and I see my situation, then I can look around and I can start to see, wait a minute, there might actually be possibilities bigger than just me in this there might be something bigger than just what I control. And I believe that's what happens as this guy is hanging on the cross. And I believe he's coming to this place of brokenness and confession. And you see, this guy over here, he doesn't understand what Hebrews says, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You cannot be forgiven without the shedding of blood because justice, the bar is still held up high. And unless there is shedding of blood, there can't actually be true forgiveness. We can turn the blind eye and say we're accepting or we're tolerating, but that's not actually forgiveness. That doesn't get us to an effective place. But this guy over here, what's happening is, is he's beginning to realize that he needs forgiveness. He's confessing his sins. He's broken. And he's saying, this is horrible. There is injustice in this situation. And I'm not the one who's being treated unjustly. It's this guy. And he turns. And this is, this is my imagination. Scriptures don't say this. I believe he turns and he looks up and he reads that sign above the cross. And what does the sign say? King of the Jews. And to everyone else, this is some sort of joke or something. But do you hear the next words out of this guy's mouth. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A kingdom. Where do you get the idea of a kingdom? 
Why did all of a sudden you start thinking Jesus was a king? I believe that what happens to us is when we get broken, when we get humble, when we get honest, when we own our own junk, and we say we need help, that all of a sudden our worldview changes. And we can start to see things that we didn't see before. I once was blind, but now I see. That's what amazing grace is. It was his grace that taught my heart to fear, that broke me. And then by grace's fear relieved me. I was blind back then. I couldn't see anything because I was in my pride. I was in control. I had my greed and my selfishness and I had my fears. But when I released all that stuff and said, I'm a mess and I need help, then all of a sudden God could start to communicate to me again. And I believe that what was a joke to so many people above that cross became the very words of God to this man next to him. That he looked up at this cross and what was written by the hand of Pilate was spoken by the voice of God into his heart. See, God has a way of opening up a whole new understanding of reality. He gives us imagination. He gives us his imagination. The ability to see a world that we can't see with these physical eyes. The essence of of things hoped for, the presence of things unseen. What is that? Faith. Faith is the essence of things unseen, the presence of things we hope for. That's what it is. The things that we're yearning for, that we can't grab a hold of, the things that that are unseen but are realities. The only way we engage them is through faith, and faith starts with a level of brokenness, and it's ignited with something called imagination where God allows us to see a little bit into his world. I was reading the other day, there's this book that our kids have that's about the passion. It's a a Lenten book. And at at the cross scene, it's this amazing picture. I should have scanned it and put it up on the screen. But it's this amazing scene where you're at Golgotha and there's the, there's the crosses, and there's the back in, in, the, in the foreground are these religious leaders who are sitting there, and you know you can tell they're the religious leaders, and they're in all their pomp and their pride. <laughs> and and then there's a there's a um, all above Jesus. There's all these angels in full color, okay, and there's one angel that's sitting right above them. And then in the middle, up you go up the hill, and on the side on Mount Zion is is Jerusalem with all the walls around it. And there's people pouring out of the city of Jerusalem, all coming down with banners and everything. And they all lead to the foot of the cross. And they're all dressed in white. And they all have these banners. It's behind them that these religious leaders stand. And intermingled with those with all the white robes are like Jesus and Mary. Or, uh, I'm sorry, John and Mary at the foot of the cross. And what's going on in this picture is is there's two different realities of what's happening in this moment. There's a fantasy reality, a false reality, which everyone else seems to think is the reality. You know, that this guy who thought he was king of the Jews is hanging on a Roman cross with some sign that Pilate wrote, when in reality, one guy hanging on a cross gets to see it. That here... The blood atonement is taking place. That the king is stepping into his kingdom. And that God Almighty had so designed in his sovereignty that a sign would be written above him that would say, here he is, king of the Jews, take it or leave it. Either be ever seeing and never perceiving or open your eyes of faith, have imagination and imagine just what's happening in this moment. That Emmanuel, God is with us. The king has arrived. 
stand in your pride on one side of the cross in our brokenness or in our lack of brokenness and our pride and our greed and in our fears and only see this reality or get broken and realize there's something more and engage it by the grace of God. Here's the thing is that when Jesus comes, he only comes as one thing. He only comes one way. Jesus doesn't change who he is. When Jesus comes, he only comes as king. That's it. It's king or it's nothing. Now, he's a servant king, and he's a good, good, good king. But he's always king, which means this, that if I'm on this side of the cross, and I don't believe that sign, then I can't actually engage a relationship with Jesus because I don't know the real Jesus because I'm unwilling to submit to the king. But if I'm on this side of the cross, and if I'm hanging out with a broken spirit here and understanding this hasn't all worked, then what can happen is I can submit to the king. And if I have a willing heart, then my imagination can expand and I can see something different. Sometimes we want to come to Jesus the way the guy, the, the one thief on the cross came to Jesus, the one, uh, the, the one guy on the cross came to Jesus. We want to say, hey, prove yourself, fix my life for me, you know, instead of accepting the consequences that my life's messed up because of me, you know. It's not messed up because of anyone else. It's not messed up because this world's unfair. It's messed up because I'm messed up. And while, yeah, I've had the school of hard knocks or whatever, and people have thrown stuff at me, bottom line is I've messed up my life, Okay. And when I come to terms with that and still look for something beyond it, then the imagination can start. That's when the imagination can start. It only happens out of brokenness. I can't tell Jesus how I want him to come to me. I can only come to him in brokenness, worshiping a king, or not at all. That's all there is. This phrase right here, it says, Today you will be with me in paradise. And... um, We talked about paradise. That's kind of what the whole thing here is about whether or not they can imagine a paradise. But it's even bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. This first word today, this is about the current reality. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say about today and tomorrow? What is it? Yeah, don't, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. What does Paul say about his past? Forgetting what is behind. Looking forward to what is ahead. There's this idea that whatever's in the past, it's in the past. It's over. It's done with. And whatever's in the future, I can't really control it. God's got it. What I can do is embrace a moment. And what I think is so amazing about this moment and about this phrase is that here is this guy in the darkest possible moment of his life. He is staring down death. He is in excruciating pain. He is like, his life is horrific. He is the picture of scorn in this moment. And what Jesus says is today you will be with me in paradise. Now, of course, on one level, what that means is he'll pass from this life into another and he'll experience something. But I believe that word today means so much more than that. You know, in Hebrews, uh, we're told that there is a day of rest that God has created. And that day is called today. He gave us a day of rest. But it's not seven days from now where it's Sabbath. It's today. Every day is a day of rest if we will engage Christ. In the Psalms, we read this. Today, if you hear his words, 
do not harden your heart. Today, today is the day the Lord has made, and we have a choice what to do with it. Today, somewhere in this room, Jesus is present. This is a reality. This is not a false reality. We're not dealing with fantasy. But I would invite you to use your imagination and to use the scriptures and have them shape your imagination. Because he says, you know, the separation of the sheep and the goats at the end, Lord, when did we see you and not give you water? When When did we see you in need and not help you? And he says, so as you've done to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done unto me. Jesus is with us. He's among us. And sometimes we think about him in future terms. And sometimes we regret what we've done in the past. Sometimes we're so stuck on our pride or our selfishness that we can't see him. But here today, he's in this room. And it might be something internally that I've got to work on. It might be someone across the room who I need to shake hands with. Jesus might be calling us to action. He might be calling us to rest. But he's definitely calling to us. And he's definitely available. And there's signs everywhere that scream out that he's king. It's just a matter of whether we have the imagination to see it and to embrace it, and to live today in his presence. The beautiful thing is that this guy, he was about to be in paradise, but today he was already beginning to move toward paradise because he was being crucified with Christ. And he knew it. And he received the just penalty for his sin in a physical nature, but he allowed Christ to receive spiritually the penalty for his sin. And he received the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And he decided that right there on a cross in his darkest hour would be his first step into paradise because he would be with Jesus. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's an amazing picture. Let's pray.